Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. We're going to talk about bearing with the failings of the week. And so Romans chapter 15, and we'll get through 15 and 16 today. And uh, final one here, farewell from Romans. And uh, we, so we read the first seven verses here. And, uh, and then we'll pray and get going. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the, repro- the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord, in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think it's kind of neat that over the last few months uh, we've basically publicly read through a big chunk of the, of the book of Romans. So that's kind of neat. And uh, let's pray now and, and let the Holy Spirit uh, work in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the book of Romans. I pray, Father, more than anything, that the truths that we've, that we've talked about and meditated on and read through uh, here in these services as we go through this such an important letter, that they would actually take root in our hearts, changing us. May your grace change us. May we never forget those, those key truths from chapters 5 through 8 about your grace, about justification, about forgiveness of sins. Father, may we feel those truths. And now, Lord, as we end this series and have been ending this series in the last few weeks, in the last few chapters here, Father, may we be gripped by love coming out of what you have done for us. May we be gripped with love for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is what it means to be a mature Christian. This is what it means to be a godly person, a follower of Christ, a mature believer, is that a mature believer, someone who is strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is what it means to be a godly person. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower. And I think that sometimes we have a picture of of a mature Christian where the mature Christian is sort of a stern person maybe who looks down on people who sin, who gets angry easily at people who mess up or whatever, who maybe knows a lot of doctrine um, and has high expectations of people. But here in this verse, we see a different picture of what maturity looks like. I think maturity is a gracious smile. Someone who can bear with the failings of the weak who makes allowance for people's faults. I want to show you a couple other verses because what does it mean to bear with the failings of the weak? I like the way Paul puts it in uh, two other verses in his letters, uh, one in Ephesians chapter 4 and one in Colossians chapter 3. He says this in the NLT version. I just like the way it's, it's said there in the NLT. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, he says, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. This is another way of saying bear with the failings of the weak is to make allowance for each other's faults. Colossians 3.13 says the same thing. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Make allowance 
for each other's faults. Bear with the failings of the weak. This is what it means to be a mature believer, that we actually budget into our relational space, that we budget into our hearts, that all the people around us uh, are not going to be perfect. They're actually going to mess up. They're going to hurt us. They're going to disappoint us. They're going to severely annoy us and irritate us at times. And they're going to do all kinds of things, but we're going to budget into our relationships and we're going to budget into our heart that they're going to make those mistakes and we're going to make allowance. We're actually going to give people room to mess up. We're going to give people room to mess up. And, uh, you know, there's a popular saying that we often, we often say, it's a cliche, uh, nobody's perfect. And, we, and we, we've all said that, you know, a hundred times. Uh, and usually it's after we make a mistake, hey, nobody's perfect, right? And, uh, and so we say nobody's perfect, but the fact of the matter is we don't actually believe it. And the reason I know that we don't actually believe it, or at least I know that many times I don't believe it, is because the moment someone does something to irritate us or cross us or take advantage of us or do something that's a fault, we get angry. And what does anger mean? Anger means I have no room for you to be imperfect. Anger means I have no room. There is a place for righteous anger, absolutely, and, and, and injustice and all that sort of stuff. But much of our anger is the opposite of making allowance for people's faults. Much of our anger is, yes, we have this cliche, nobody's perfect, but much of our anger says, I actually expect you to be perfect. And the moment you're not perfect, the moment you do something that bothers me or hurts me or isn't the way I see things should be done, I'm angry. That means I don't accept you unless you get it right. I don't accept you. I don't actually, it's the opposite. Much of our anger is the opposite of making allowance for people's faults. We are angry because we don't want them to have faults, at least not with us. And so we need to not only accept, if we're going to be mature believers, if we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we're coming to the end of the book of, of Romans, this incredible theological document, transformative, some of the most amazing eternal truths ever. And at the end of it, what we find is, what is all of this amazing theological truth supposed to do to us? It's most supposed to make us this kind of a person, a person who makes room and allowance for people to be irritating and bad and off and all sort of stuff. We need to actually embrace people in their faults. And this means in our marriages, we need to embrace our spouses in their faults, right? We need to make allowance for the fact that, that sometimes, this doesn't apply to me and the dawn, obviously, but to the rest of you, um, <clears throat> that we need to make allowance that sometimes your spouse is going to be grouchy. They're going to have bad days. Now, often when our spouse is grumpy or having a bad day, we get angry because, and what we're saying in that anger is, you're not allowed to have a bad day. I only accept you when you have good days. But a mature believer makes allowance for faults which says, actually, you're allowed. I've budgeted this in, okay? I've budgeted in that a half of the time you're gonna be grumpy, or I budgeted in that I married a grouchy person, and so three quarters of the time, you're just gonna be off, okay? But we're gonna make allowance, allowance for each other's faults. Anger says, no mistakes. Every day must be a good day. Love says, you are allowed to have bad days. You are allowed to make mistakes. You are allowed to be imperfect and human around me, and I will love you anyway. Amen. Same with our kids. We need to make allowance for our kids to have faults. I was, I, and I, I can't remember when this was, maybe a year ago or, or two years ago, I'm not sure, but in the last uh, little while, uh, I realized at one point that I was rewarding our kids always 
uh, whether it be in schooling or various things, I was rewarding our kids for perfection. So if you get all the answers right, then this. Or if you don't make any mistakes over the next few days, you don't have any screw-ups in this, this, or this, then I'm going to do this. And I was, I was rewarding perfection. And I remember one day, I just had this realization, I was in the middle of it, of, of doing it with one of them, and suddenly I realized, I'm going to raise these kids to be unbelievably neurotic because the thing I reward is perfection, and it's not going to be long before they're going to be afraid to take risks. They're going to be afraid to try things because the only thing that gets rewarded in this house is perfection. And so I immediately swung the other way, and I, I had a little mantra that we said for about a month or two. I said, in this family, we don't reward perfection. And I started to reward them just for, for taking a shot, just for taking a risk, just for doing that sort of stuff because love, this idea that perfection is the goal, that's the opposite of making allowance for people's faults. And as parents, and in our marriages, we need to make allowance, we need to bear with the failings. A failing is a failing. It's called a failing because it's not a success. Bear with the failings. Make allowance for people's faults. And the, thing, and the truth of the matter is, any of us who's ever experienced someone to give us that kind of love, it is, it is life to the soul, is it not? I mean, if we go back through our lives, little touches in our lives where we've done something, we've messed up, we've made a mistake, we've hurt something, we've done something, and then someone offered us that kind of, I make room for your faults and accept you anyway, is that not life to the soul? Um, I was thinking back uh, this week to a time when I was a kid. I can't remember how old I was. I was 10 or 11 years old. And, uh, and my, uh, my mom had a bunch of people over uh, during the day, a bunch of, bunch of women, and there some kids over and all this sort of stuff. And, and I was in the back uh, yard of our house there in Woodstock, Ontario. And my sisters had a room. Kim and Julie had a room uh, upstairs in the house and a window faced out the backyard. And for some reason, I, I was a young guy, again, like maybe 10 or so, whatever it was. And I just had this idea, you know, I want to get their attention. And so I looked around, I grabbed a ball, and I thought, I'm just going to toss this ball at the window uh, to grab their attention. And again, why do 10-year-old boys make some of the decisions that they make? Okay, uh, testosterone, a temporary loss of, of logic and reason. So anyway, I picked up the, the ball, and I threw it, and the moment, the moment it left my finger, all the thoughts I should have thought a few seconds before... <laughs> We're like, suddenly I thought through, what's actually going to happen? I hadn't thought through how this ball going to the window was going to get their attention. And so I just threw it. And the moment I threw it, I, I had this just such a clear realization, this ball is going to sail through the window. And so I watched it. I just uh, uh, an icy uh, spear of dread pierced my heart. And I watched this ball. It was thrown well and right through the window. Smash, okay? And again, we had many visitors over. Uh, my mother, whose voice has been known to carry at times, I could hear her from the backyard, from the front of the house in the, in the downstairs, uh, something to the effect of, what was that? <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, wow. And I'm feeling, and what does a 10-year-old kid feel in, in, this, in this, well, what would any of us feel, right? You feel shame, uh, embarrassment. I mean, I have no excuse. What am I going to tell her? Uh, I was, you know, I was throwing the ball over there and it just veered off up there. Actually, I was aiming at the window. I, I actually threw it and hit what I was intending to hit. And so I'm walking in, and there's fear. My mom's going to kill me uh, in front of a bunch of people, so that's the embarrassment and shame part. And I, so I walk in, and I'll never forget her, um, you know, at the, at the bottom of the stairs there, and, and she said, uh, uh, what, what happened? And I, and I said, well, 
I, 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 I threw the ball through the window. And I'm thinking now, <laughs> this, is, this is the blow-up moment, right? This is the moment we've all been waiting for. And in that moment, I, just, I can still remember it on her face. She looked at me, cocked her head for just a moment, and she said, well, I guess that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Come upstairs and help me clean it up. And in that moment with that response, okay, now how would you respond in that moment, right? How would I respond to my kids? I don't know. She was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment, I think. Um, but in that moment, that response in that moment, right? Because what do we want to do in that moment is we want to come down hard, right? We want to, we want to blow up in anger. You idiot, you just broke the window, right? As if that's going to solve things. But in that moment, with that response, she told me something as a kid about who I was and what I meant to her. And all the shame and the guilt and the fear in that moment taken off. And, and that, that's what love is. Make allowance for each other's faults. A fault is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Okay, it's easy to make allowance for people's perfections. But we're called to make allowance for people's faults, to love them and accept them even when they mess up, right? Even when they mess up. And so we have to embrace the fact that family is messy and marriage is messy and church is messy and cell groups are messy and business is messy. It's all messy because people aren't perfect. So when you go out and you do business in the marketplace, yes, People will do stupid things. Even people who call themselves Christians, we actually have to make allowance for their faults. And yes, people are going to make mistakes here in a church. And yes, people are going to annoy you in your cell group. But if the Spirit of Jesus is really at work in our lives, then this is the kind of people we're going to be, is we're going to make allowance for people's faults. And we're going to bear with the failings of the weak. And you know what this will do? If the Spirit of Jesus, if we allow him to so grip our hearts that we become this kind of a people, you know what this will do. It'll be incredibly attractive. It'll bring tremendous glory to God because this kind of love does not exist in abundance out there in the world. In fact, it doesn't, sadly enough, in our churches, does not exist in all that much abundance in many churches, but it certainly does not exist in abundance out there in the world, and the world is desperate for this kind of love. And so we read just a few verses later there in chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Why? That together you may with one voice glorify. Now notice this, by the way. If we glorify God with our voices, but we don't glorify him with this kind of love, the voice glory doesn't do anything. But if we love with this kind of love and make allowance for people's faults, then when we speak, it's going to bring tremendous glory to God. And what does that mean, bring glory to God? It's going to attract people to God. They're going to want him too. The glory of the, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, excuse me, for the glory of God. I know, uh, you know, stories here in our church, uh, cell leaders who have stuck with people who are really difficult to walk with, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years, just years and years, and, you know, at, for a long time, you see no 
no movement, and you just think, why are we even doing this? It just seems like a lot of pain for nothing. But it's amazing how if you just make a commitment to someone and you just love on them and love on them and love on them in spite of their warts, in spite of their faults, how in some cases, after a number of years, all of a sudden there's just like a transformation. And love is transformative. And last week in a message I talked about you know, in, in business, paying your bills. And we talked about not putting a stumbling block in front of people that if we're going to call ourselves believers, when we go out there in the marketplace, we need to go above and beyond not to destroy the work of God in people's lives. We need to have integrity. We need to pay our bills. We need to not bring, you know, disrepute on the name of Jesus when we're out there. We need to bend over backwards, even if it means losing profits. But this week, I'm not talking about the other side. What do you do? If someone doesn't pay you, what do you do if someone rips you off? Last week we talked about don't be the person ripping someone off. This week, now we look at the other side and we say, what do you do when you're the one being ripped off? This passage tells us when we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, we actually make allowance for people's faults. This doesn't mean that you don't, you know, ever try to collect money or anything like that. Absolutely not. But what it means is that when someone rips you off, It means instead of getting all bitter and hard inside and judging them and all kinds of things, whatever comes with that, it means we make allowance for their faults and we realize, you know what, that person is struggling in some area of their life and we pray for them and we forgive them and we love them and we bless them. We bear with the failings, not just the perfections. Perfections don't take bearing with. We're supposed to bear with the failings, which means we're going to encounter failings when we're encountering people. This is, this is what the Spirit of Jesus does in our lives. He wants us to bear with the failings and the faults when people hurt us, irritate us, all that sort of stuff. Now, the second reason why, it'll be hard, why this is going to be hard is because it's going to require endurance. Um, it's not just a matter of, you know, some people, it's like, okay, I just got to love that person one time, and then they're going to be fixed. Or if I just love them for a month, then they're going to be fixed. Truth of the matter is, the longer I live and see my own failings and how long it takes me to get on my own failings, the more I realize that our faults and our failings usually don't disappear in a month or a week or even a year in many cases. And so part of loving this way, loving people this way, means enduring in love. See, I could preach a message like this and we all just go out of here all pumped to love someone in their faults and failings. And by next week, they're not changed yet. So when next week's message comes up, we go, we tried that. I love that person with a fault, and it was brutally hard, and they didn't change. Here's the thing. We're not loving them in order to change them. Now, I think that in many cases, love by the Spirit of God will change them. But that's not why we're loving. We're called to endure, which is why he says here, may the God of endurance, look what Paul says here, may the God of endurance, in order to love this way, it's going to take endurance. Because the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of faults and failings that are going to be around for, in people for years and years and whatever. You know, there's things, uh, you know, whether it be, it could be alcoholism or it could be uh, a lust thing or it could be even uh, you know, a non-sin thing. It could be depression or anxiety. And you, you know, you love someone for a little bit and then it's like, finally, you just get this thing like, pull up your bootstraps and get over it. Uh, this passage is the opposite of pull up your bootstraps and get over it. Now, there's a place and a time for pull up your bootstraps and get over it. Your 18-year-old son or 19-year-old son is lying around on the couch doing nothing. Pull up your bootstraps and get out there and get a job, okay? Something like that. That might be appropriate at times. 
But many of the times, our attitude of pull up your bootstraps and get over it is actually the opposite of bearing with the failings of the weak. And we need to endure with people and love them. I'll never forget having a person in my office one time, uh, and they had tried everything here at this church, outside of this church, and number of issues, and just they had done this, this, they had done everything they were supposed to do, and they still had their issues. And you just almost get overwhelmed. And so I listened, and I listened, and I was saying, Lord, like, what do I, what do I say? And I realized there was no answer. I didn't have an answer. I didn't have a, another prayer. They'd done everything. They'd done the retreats and the inner healing and, and everything, and still they had issues. And I finally realized there is no right answer here. They just need to be loved. And so I, I just listened and listened, and finally at the end I said, you know what? Even if you never get over your stuff, you have a place here, and we love you. Just saying those words, the shoulders relax, tears start to stream out. They just needed to know that even if they never get better, they have a place here and they're part of the family. That's the kind of love that the Spirit of Jesus wants us to love with. Even if your depression never leaves, you have a place here. Even if your eating disorder never leaves, you have a place here, you are welcomed here. Even if your same-sex attraction or you put whatever it is on there, your irritating habits never leave in this church because we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, you have a place here. Amen. And you can struggle your entire life and still have a place here. We'll love you because the Spirit of Jesus loves you. Bear with the failings of the weak. Now again, a little bit of a caveat here. This doesn't mean there's never a place for, for a rebuke. This doesn't mean there's never a place for tough love. It doesn't mean that just because I, I love someone doesn't mean I never say hard things to them. There might be a place where I don't, I don't want to enable you in your issues. So I may come to you and I may confront you, but even when I confront you, we need to make sure that instead of confronting in a spirit of anger where we push a person away and we say, what I'm really saying is get it together, I don't love you, what, we're really say, what we want to say is I'm committed to you, now let me tell you some things and I'm in this to walk it through with you, there's certainly a place for rebuke and for tough love, but we need to communicate to people that we are committed to them and that we love them. Now, there's just one more thing I want to say here before we move on in this chapter about bearing with the failings of the weak. Now, um, I know what a lot of people, what, what can happen is, you know, you read a verse like this, we've got to bear with the failings of the weak. And everybody nods. I don't think I've said anything controversial here today at all. This is like, this is the kind of message that would go over well even outside the church walls. Um, bear with the failings of the weak. So everybody nods and says, absolutely, we need to bear with the failings of the weak. And we need to make allowance for people's faults. But I'll tell you what can happen often is that all the strong people and the mature people go, that's great, our church is accepting. And then what we do after is we continue to congregate only with other strong people. And so we assume that somebody else, because here's the thing, in order to bear with the failings of the weak, for a strong person to bear with the failings of the weak, the strong and the weak actually have to mingle sometimes. You ever think about that? Yeah, I'm not bearing with the failings of the weak if I never touch weak people. Does that make sense? So it's one thing for us all to sit in our, in our seats and, or, you know, for, during our devotions or during a message and go, oh yes, our church needs to bear with the failings of the weak. Amen. Preacher Chris, what a great idea. And thank goodness we have four wins to do that. 
thank goodness we have Pastor Tim Ryan. He meets with troubled people. And thank goodness for Four Winds Housing and Terry and Sharice. And thank goodness for Stephen Erickson because he loves to meet with those people. So God bless them and we'll continue to pay their salaries and they can bear with the failings of the week. No, no, no. When the Spirit of Jesus gets a hold of us, we're not satisfied anymore just to have the strong with the strong and then leave someone else to minister to the weak. The strong and the weak have to come together so that the strong can carry the burdens of the weak. And there's an amazing dynamic that is unleashed when we do that because as a strong carries the, you know, walks with someone who is weak, someone who is annoying, someone who has struggles that never seem to go away. As a strong person walks with them, it's not just the weak who benefits, it's the strong who goes deeper in Christ. It's the strong who grows in maturity. And then the weak is helped too. So there needs to be a dynamic in our church if we're going to really be a spirit-filled church. There needs to be a dynamic where we're not just strong with strong and weak with weak, but the strong and the weak are coming together and we're having open arms in our cell groups and in our homes to minister and to love people who aren't always easy to love. You know what the book of James says, right? James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So here the, the Apostle James is rebuking people for making distinctions and favoring rich people over poor people. But the, the, the application of this passage is much bigger than just rich or poor. It just applies to all kinds of things. Do we make distinctions between people? Do we only hang around with the people who have it all socially together? Or do we ever make room to reach out to someone who might be a bit awkward and out of place and annoying, who might have some habits that drive us crazy? Do we ever make room for that person? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what would happen if every cell group, if every cell group will get a, get a vision for this. That actually, what if we each took in one or two people that are difficult to love or who are weak and we could walk with the weak? What if every, you know, what if, what if every older couple would take, get, get a vision to prayerfully say, Lord, are there any struggling couples, married couples in this church we want to pour into them? What if every young adult uh, person, you know, got it in their heart. I'm going to walk with some middle school and high school students. What if we just began to, to mingle, to get a vision from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, to say, I'm not just going to be with people who are easy to be with. I'm going to minister to younger. I'm going to minister to weaker. I'm going to minister to awkward. And we had a mingling of the strong and the weak and the young and the old. But if we're ever going to become a church like this, we're going to need a mission mindset. We're going to need a mission mindset, which is the opposite of a comfort mindset. And so many Christians today here in the West, we approach church with a comfort mindset. I want to believe in Jesus and go to heaven. I'm totally all on that. But I also just want to do what's easy. I just want to have my life. And what we need is to have a mission mindset, which is, Holy Spirit, I'm available. 
I'm available for people. I'm available for mission. I'm available for ministry. My life isn't here to be easy. My life isn't here just to be comfortable. I'm here to serve the kingdom of Jesus. And we see this with Paul. Paul modeled this. If we jump ahead in, in chapter 15 here to verse 17, Paul says this, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, I just want to stop you for just a moment. Why did, was, did all this power follow Paul in his life? Like, how come, you know, power of signs and wonders and power of the Spirit of God, how come Paul had so much power in his life? Was it because he was so spiritual? Like, Paul was just more spiritual than everybody else. So God said, you know what? I just love you more than everybody else. I'm going to pour out more power on your life as a result. Is that why Paul had more power in his life? Did Paul have more power in his life? Because he was just this amazing guy. It was just this, this magical thing. And he just, no. So we're going to see in the next passage. How come Paul had so much power in his life? Let's take a look. So that from Jerusalem and all the way to, to Illyricum, that's modern day Albania, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I'll tell you why Paul had so much power in his life. It's because he had offered up his life to Christ. That power was there for him to fulfill the mission he had been given by Jesus. If Paul had just decided, you know what, I'm just going to sit at home and enjoy my Christianity, do you think there would have been signs and wonders of the power of the Spirit of God? No. Because you don't need the power of the Spirit of God to sit at home and be comfortable. You don't need the Spirit of God to help you watch more TV. You don't need the Spirit of God to help you have more pleasure in life. The reason Paul had so much power in his life was because he had offered his life to God and God said, I have to empower you to do the mission I've given to you. And Paul said, I'm here to do whatever mission you want to give me. And God says, well, I've got to pour up my power on you to take care of a mission that big. And it's as we get a mission mindset, it's as we step out and say, my life is not for me, my life is for Jesus, for advancing his kingdom. Now his power flows into your life for you to advance his mission. His power is for his mission, not for your enjoyment. Sometimes I think Christians have gotten this mistake that the power of God falls on us for our own good feelings. Well, the power of God can give us experiences that feel good, but the power of God is not there for us to feel good. The power of God is not there for us to feel good about ourselves or for us to have some experience. The power of God is there for us to advance his kingdom. When we become about his kingdom in our lives, the power of God will fall in our lives and it will flow in our lives. Paul was driven by a holy ambition. I, I, I like that. If I, I just want to... Paul was driven by an ambition. Verse 20, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Now I wonder, what ambitions do we have? Now no doubt there's many ambitions, okay? And none of us is Paul, none of us has identically his calling. He had a unique calling. But there's many ambitions out there, right? Some people have an ambition, I want to graduate from university. That's a perfectly good ambition, that's fine. Some people have an ambition to grow their business. That's a perfectly good ambition. That's a great ambition. We, there's many ambitions. We all have different ambitions. And it's not bad to have ambitions in the world, to grow your business or graduate from university or do well at something, whatever it is. Those are good ambitions. But my question is, are those ambitions serving a holy ambition? Yeah. 
Do we have a holy ambition, not just to grow my business or to, or to graduate from university? Those are good ambitions. They're fine ambitions. They're, they're great. We should have ambitions like that. But do we have a holy ambition that brings those things together and causes them to serve Christ? Do we have an ambition to see Jesus lifted up in our business? Do we have an ambition to use our education, not just to get a career that pays us money, that will make us comfortable, but do we have an ambition to advance the cause of Christ in that career? Do we have an ambition to reach employees, customers, fellow students, teachers for Jesus? Do we have a holy ambition? Paul was driven by a holy ambition. Now the question is, how did Paul get that ambition? And I think there's a couple things. How did Paul get a holy ambition? It's easy to have worldly ambitions. Many of them are totally fine. They might even play into the, to a holy ambition. But how did Paul get a holy ambition? Well, I think it starts, it absolutely has to start with an encounter with Jesus. Paul's holy ambition started on the road to Damascus, right? He was persecuting the church. He had an encounter with Jesus. And it's an encounter with Jesus that changes a person and says, I want to serve that God. It was an encounter with Jesus that set Paul aflame with a holy ambition. We need to encounter Jesus. Now, of course, this is not, not about feeling guilty. Most of us will not have, the vast majority of us, probably all of us, will not have uh, necessarily an encounter with Jesus as spectacular as Paul's road to Damascus. That's not on us. That's in Jesus' hands. Paul didn't have such an experience with Jesus because he was such a good man. He was a bad man when he had the experience. Okay? That's in Jesus' hands how spectacular the experience is. I'm not saying you have to have an experience with Jesus like what Paul had, but you need to encounter Jesus. And sometimes encounter Jesus, you say, well, how do I have an encounter with Jesus if it's all in his hands? Well, sometimes Jesus says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Sometimes we need to seek Jesus. Sometimes we need to ask him and say, Lord, I need to encounter you more in my life. I need to know you because it's when you know him that your heart is set aflame for him. Otherwise, it's just dead religion. It's in meeting Jesus that we get a holy ambition. But then I want you to notice a second thing, um, Paul's ambition. How, how did he get this holy ambition? And we see it in verse 21, because he doesn't talk about his, his road to Damascus experience here. That's in other places. But in verse 21, he says, but as it is written. When he talks about his holy ambition, he goes back to the scriptures, and he has scriptures that are sitting there in his heart that are fueling his ambition, a calling from God. He had an experience on the road to Damascus with Jesus, but then he got into the word of God, and he searched out the word of God, and it was in the word of God that God was able to give him rhema words and verses and passages and say, this is your calling. And it was in the word of God that his holy ambition was fanned into flame. I can't tell you in my life how many verses I have journaled, underlined, dated in, in, in the Bible where my calling is confirmed, promises. This is where you nurture that flame is in here of a holy ambition, of a holy ambition. What are you calling me to, Jesus? And so again, I ask, what's your holy ambition? We're sending Donovan off today, you know, to Winnipeg. He's already been there, but we're, we're officially doing it here today. I, I talked about a young woman, you know, off in the Middle East now from our church family that we're supporting. Amazing, you know? And church renewal, you know, hundreds of churches. That's what this is all about. It's all about a holy ambition to advance his kingdom. And we can all play a part in this. But you know what? You don't have to leave to have a holy ambition. You don't have to leave to have a holy ambition. I think of the SRSS. It's one of the two or three biggest schools in this entire province. 
I wonder if anybody in this church, if the Holy Spirit wants to give a holy, a holy ambition to say, I actually care about that place, that I want to see hundreds of students be passionate for Jesus Christ. I don't want to just see a dozen students. I want to see hundreds of students. And you get a holy ambition where you begin to pray, where you begin to take risks, where you begin to get involved, where we get a holy ambition. We've got so many sports teams in this area, in this community, where someone gets a holy ambition that I want to reach hockey players for Jesus. I want to disciple young hockey players or older hockey players or whatever it is. Do we get a holy ambition for, you know, the fire department, the police department, all these different places? Do we have a holy ambition? We have mission fields right here or are we just going through life to be comfortable? How much money did I make this year? Did I have a nice vacation? Did my house get bigger? Do we have a holy ambition that drives us where we go in here and we ask God and we say, there must be something more for me here on this life than just to be comfortable. I want to live for Jesus. And he fills us and he sets our hearts aflame and we serve him. Let's finish our series a final farewell here. We pass into chapter 16, and he has a bunch of, I mean, I guess I could preach it. It's God's word. But the first bunch of verses in chapter 6 is just greetings to people. I'm not going to go there right now. We could come back at a different time, maybe. But we jump ahead to verse 17, a final farewell from the book of Romans. Verse 17, Paul leaves us with this final exhortation. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Okay? That's a warning for us. That's from Paul. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. We need to watch out for people. This is Paul at the end of his letter. He's just given us some final thoughts. Watch out for those people who call them Christi- themselves Christians, preachers and teachers and leaders and writers who confuse God's holy doctrine, who lead people astray and into sin. Watch out for them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They may call themselves Christians. Don't be fooled just because someone is part of a church or a leader who has written a book. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Smooth talk and flattery. In other words, they don't come saying things that are obviously wicked or obviously evil. They come with smooth talk and flattery. They come talking about love and social justice and all kinds of very nice things in Christianese with smooth talk and flattery. But they obscure and deny the holiness, wrath, and judgment of God against sin. And they lead people astray into compromise, complacency, and immorality. Paul goes on, verse 19, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. There's a calling on us. As we've been going through this book of Romans, there's a calling on us to become mature, to become wise and discerning, not naive, not following every trend of smooth talk and flattery, not immoral in our behavior, but holding on to the grace of God in wisdom and maturity. And then lastly, there's the hope that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that good news? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's our feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And sometimes, you know, we look around and it just kind of feels hopeless. And it kind of feels like, you know, Christianity is taking a bit of a beating right now in the culture and the media and everything just seems to be against and it looks like all the momentum is on their side. 
All the momentum, all the power, it just looks like it's all on their side. And then we remember Paul's exhortation that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. We don't, we don't want to compromise now. We don't want to quit now. To quit, to give up, and to compromise is actually to go over to the side that's going to lose in the end just before the victory. So the God of peace, we need to return to this truth over and over and over again. That even when it looks like we're losing, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. So here's a weekly challenge to finish off this series on Romans. Number one, what is your holy ambition? That would be a good thing to talk to Jesus about this week. What's your holy ambition? Ask God to give you a holy ambition. Talk to him about what your holy ambition could or should be. But what's your holy ambition? And then to think about that whole side of things, the strong need to walk with the weak. Who are you carrying? Who are you walking with? Who is God asking you to take into your life or into your cell? Maybe you're thinking of just some specific ones there, marriage mentoring. You can email Tim Ryan at myselfen.com there, Tim Honor. You can general life mentoring. You can talk to Marlene Lepke. You can email uh, her. Um, Wednesday night discipleship there. You can, you can email Scott Ricky. Uh, any of that sort of stuff. There's lots of places for you to mingle with the week. But God will give you 100,000 more. There's lots of, lots of opportunities to bear with the failings of the week. And so if you pray about it and talk to God about it, there's lots there. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sing a final song of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that your spirit would take over our hearts, driving us down deep into the soil of your love, that this is actually what it means to love. It's to make allowance for people's faults. It's to actually make room. It's to bear with the failings of those who irritate us, who mess up, who are weak, who are stuck in stuff, Father. We have to bear with the failings. We have to love them and make room for them in our lives. Help us to become that kind of a church. Help us to give you glory in this community by becoming that kind of a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.